This morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we truly can say what, what a mess Corinth was. And, and we've seen glimpses of that. We've seen the issues that are present in Corinth, especially in the church. Sin was obviously the disease in Corinth, and ultimately and universally it is as well in our world. You can't escape it. You can't escape the problem of sin. You uh, cannot defeat it on your own. Uh, Look around. Uh, Just as it is marked in Corinth, you see it everywhere in our world, and it leaves brokenness in its path, as we're going to even see this morning. Uh, One has said, Paul Tripp, about sin, that sin complicates what is already complicated. Sin distorts our identity, it uh, distorts and alters our perspective in life, it derails our behavior, It, it kidnaps our hope. That's what sin does. And But when we look at the scripture this morning, we see that this is exactly the place here in the church in Corinth where God's Spirit built this beautiful mess of a church, and He wants to use these people. It was not perfect and all tidied up, but this is exactly the place and people that God wanted to use to bring hope to the world in Corinth. And so it is with us today. God uses brokenness. He takes messy people, and he wants to do a work for the kingdom and for the glory of God through and in them. And so today, as we look at this text, we look at the issue of immorality in the church and also in the world, um, and how the church should respond to immorality within, but also outside the church. What is our proper response? And so today, if you would, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're just going to simply walk through the text this morning as as we usually do. And as we look at verse 1, we we see a problem in the church. Now, Corinth had had a few issues. We've seen that laid out in the first section through chapters 1 through 4 as they were going outside of God's Word. They were leaning on human wisdom. Um, They saw the message of the cross as, as foolishness. And Paul has addressed that. And last week we finished up and Paul said, you know, I'm coming when I come to the church and as I send Timothy, I know I'm going to find that power has been stifled, that the power of the kingdom of God. And Paul taught that when we go outside God's word, when we lean on the human wisdom of this world, we stifle the work of the Holy Spirit. We stifle the power of the kingdom of God. And he said, merely what I am finding, and I know I will find when I come to Corinth, is, is mere words, empty words without power. And so today, he comes and he addresses a specific issue, a specific problem. And, and as you think about our world, the country we live in today here in the United States, um, we see this trend over time, that, that when you turn away from God's Word, when you start uh, to look outside of the Word of God, when you start to lean on human wisdom and quit regarding the Word of God as truth, 
as absolute truth. That what happens and begins to follow is a, de- is a decrease in morality, an increase in immorality, people falling in sin, a, a disregard for truth, a disregard for what is good and what is right, what is pure and what is clean. And, and we see that in our world. We, we see it in our day. We see it in our country. Um, and Paul sees it here, and he sees it in the church. And that's what can happen often. It is when the church gets outside of the Word of God and starts leaning on human wisdom, it can happen within the church as well. And so look what the problem was. In verse 1, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. Your translation may specifically says uh, sexual immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And so Paul here is addressing immorality among the church, within the church at Corinth. The word immorality right there literally is the word porneia. If, if you hear that and it kind of makes you think of something else, it, 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 it's another uh, word that we use in our day, pornography. Porneia, that's where that word comes from. And so this word porneia uh, is... Um, the idea of sexual sin uh, outside of the bounds of marriage. And so any sexual relationship with someone who is not your wife is what Paul has in mind when he uses that word. So this includes a broad spectrum of immorality. It includes adultery. It includes fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, Uh, Paul's addressing that, pornography. It even broadens to the idea of what Jesus Uh, taught and saw when it came to immorality. He says in Matthew 5, verse 28, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so this word is broad in what it includes. But the problem specific here in the church at Corinth that Paul mentions, it it was a problem that reached the level that was even greater than what pagans would consider okay. In fact, Paul says here that that one has sexual relationship with his stepmom. And when we read that, we think, whoa, that's kind of shocking, very shocking. Even to the point where Paul says pagans see that this incest that is happening in the church is not right. It's, It's not okay, yet it's present in the church at Corinth. And what Paul does here in this letter is he, he didn't just start this rant about this guy, but, but what he does is he addresses the church and their response. And look what he says in verse 2. He says, you, speaking to the church at Corinth, have become arrogant. You've become puffed up and have not mourned or grieved instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your Midst. So this deed is addressing what he had mentioned in verse 1. And so Paul doesn't address the man right here in this letter first. He addresses the church. And he says that you're arrogant, you're puffed up. Because what they have done, they, they have excused, overlooked the behavior of this person. 
And Paul says here, you, you should have been troubled over this. You should have mourned over this. You should have grieved over the sin that is in your community and your fellowship. And you should have removed this person, he says at the end of verse 2. Yet what did they do? They, they showed an attitude of being okay with it by not addressing it. And so their actions as a church were even worse than the sin itself, according to Paul here. Their lack of response to handling this rightly and addressing this was a great problem. And the reason it was a great problem was because of their view of sin. How they viewed sin. They had a very low view of sin. And, and, and and let's, let's be honest, we see that today. We see the low view of sin in our world. We, we see it lessened in churches and how, how churches address it, where churches today many times won't even address sin. They won't even address hell. They, they, they stay away from that. And so Paul says here, what, what is your view of sin, church of Corinth? <laughs> what is your view of sin? Look, look at how low this has gotten. And yet you won't even address it. And so as believers, how do we view sin? How do we view sin? Do we view it in a way where we think, okay, I'm saved, and so, all right, I have this little habit over here, this little thing I struggle with, or whatever it is, and you just kind of overlook that. You just kind of excuse it as being really an issue because you think, well, I'm saved, and God's grace is big, and His mercy it's unending, and so you just continue in that. Well, that's a, it's a wrong view of the gospel. It's a wrong view of what it means to live according to the Word of God and to truth. It's a low view of sin. So how do we view sin? The Bible speaks of sin, Romans 3.23. I don't have these verses up on the screen, but Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so when you think about sin, any type of sin, you know, and if, if, if we grade the level of it from a small to a big, God sees it all the same. <laughs> but, but, but sin is, is the dragging, literally the dragging of God's name, His glory through the mud. That's what sin is. And the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that, that the wages of sin is death, is death. Because what does sin do? Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. God hates sin because of that. He, he hates it. He is holy. He is perfect. And so sin cannot be in his presence. And he hates it. And it separates us from him. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we see with, with Eve, she, she was told to not eat. According uh, to the word of God, God told Adam, uh, you are not to eat of the tree. And yet, Eve sees it. She desires it. She takes it. And she eats of it. Adam does as well. And so here we see, what, what was that? It was a disregard for the truth of God's word. It was a disregard for obeying God. And that's what sin is. It's a disregard 
for God. It's disobedience. And so here we see a very low view of sin present in the community here at Corinth in the church. And so as far as the man goes, that is obviously living in this immorality, um, it would be one thing if he stopped living in this manner. But it seems between the lines he won't, that this is a continual struggle, continued problem. Um, he needs to be out of the community of the church, according to Paul here. And so this seems very strong, right? You, you read this this morning, and maybe you're a guest here this morning. You're like, wow, this, this is, wow. <laughs> Welcome. We're, we're just going to, you know, this, this guy's having this struggle here. We're just going to excommunicate him. He's out. Paul says, remove him from your midst. And so this seems strong, but... but Here's Paul's point with this, and I want to make sure we get this as well, is Paul wants to make sure that the church at Corinth views sin the way God does. I think that's the main point here. We'll, we'll address the removal and not associating with and all that in, in a bit, and what that means, what that looks like, and why. What's the purpose of it? But the first thing I want you to see here is, is Paul wants us to view sin the way God does. Any disobedience, right, should be a big deal to us. God wants us to live in purity and holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 15 through 16, it's not up on the screen either. I'm sorry, I'm going to go a little rogue here on you guys, but in the back. But he says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which, you, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So it should be our goal, it should be our pursuit after holiness, to, to be set apart from the sin of the world, to be set apart from the lust of the flesh. And instead, that we would walk in obedience. And as verse 16 says, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That should be our pursuit, and we should have a, a high view of sin and holiness and what God wants for us. And so the issue here with this man is that he needs to stop, and yet it seems that it's a continual sin, a continual problem in his life. And so look what he says in verse 3 through 4. He wants us to understand that this is God's will that we should address this and we should have a high view of sin. And so look what he says in verse 3. For I, on my part, Paul says, though absent in body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this. Is that good? Am I off? Okay, I'm on now. Okay, good deal, good deal. <laughs> um, Back in verse 3, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. And then look at verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with, um, with the power of our Lord Jesus. And I want to stop there real quick. And so look, look at that last phrase. That, that's key. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. And I want to stop there right, right there before we get to verse 5 and what he's going to call them um, to do. Um, 
But Paul wanted them to see, first and foremost, that this was truly God's will for them as a church and as individuals for their own life, that they would not walk in immorality, that they would not walk in the things of immorality, and that they, as a church, would not be accepting of such a lifestyle as well. And so I, I want to encourage you to turn to, actually, you don't need to turn to, because I think we have this on the, on the, on the screen, but in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is, this is a great text. If you ever have anyone ask you, hey, what's God's will for my life, right? This is it. This is it. You might be saying, well, um, no, I want to know specifics. Like, what am I supposed to do? Well, no, this is God's will. This is what he longs for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 is real clear. This is God's will. This is his will. He says this, for this is the will of God, okay? There you go. It's pretty blatant. Uh, blatant. Uh, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's a big word, right? And that's probably, probably the only time you hear that word is within uh, a church setting or in the word of God. And so sanctification is this idea that you are set apart, right? You are set apart from the things of this world. You are set apart from uh, immorality. You are set apart from sin. And instead, you are set apart for the things of God. You are set apart for holiness. You are set apart to live for the purposes of God in this world. And so that's what sanctification means, a big word. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, so that same word that we see in Corinthians, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So as believers, there's a way that, that we are to handle our bodies. There's a way that we are to behave when it comes to our bodies. And, and, and Paul says here, we, we are to know how to possess and how to live when it comes to our bodies, that it would be so in a way of sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion, verse 5, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. And then lastly, look what he says in verse 7 and 8. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He's called us to live lives of purity and holiness. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so this is God's word. His will for us is that we would walk in purity, that we would walk in holiness, that that would be the pursuit of our life. That's your will, or excuse me, that's God's will for your life today, tomorrow, the next day. That's what he wants you to pursue. That's what he wants you to go after. His holiness, his purity. But back in verse 4 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He's not in Corinth. He said that in verse 3. But he speaks here, these words here, by the authority of Jesus Christ concerning this matter. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, he tells them um, what needs to be done and that Jesus' power would be with them as they do what is right. And then that interesting, because he's, he spoke about that last week, that, that we step outside of God's word when we, when we start leaning on human wisdom, we stifle the Holy Spirit and his power at work in our life and in the midst of the church. We miss out on the power of the kingdom of God, and what we miss out is our faith being encouraged, our faith being strengthened. We miss out on walking in obedience. That's what the power of the kingdom is. 
we miss out on those things. We miss out of the, the, the joy uh, of walking with the Lord. We, we miss out on, on the fruit of the Spirit of lo- love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and, and self-control and, and all the things that God desires to give to us. We miss out on that when we step outside of God's Word and, outside, and we start leaning on human wisdom. But here he also says that, that if you w- will have a high view of sin and recognize that God does not want us to live according to what he died for, right? That if you have a high view of that and you walk in obedience, guess what? You're going to experience the power of God if you do what is right. Real simply, when we do what is right, when we live in obedience, we experience the power of God. Simple truth that he wants us to get hard though, right? Because often that flesh loves to to raise its ugly head in us. Self loves to raise its ugly head and and wants to call the shots and wants to live it the way we want to live. But God says when we choose what is right and live according to his will, we will experience the power of God. And so he says this and he says, here is what needs to be done. He tells the church, here's what you need to do. And, And he tells them why. And look at verse 5. So remember what he just said. He said, with the power of our Lord Jesus. So he says to the church, when you walk in obedience, you're going to experience the power of the Lord Jesus when you do this. So what he says in verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one, speaking of this man in verse 1, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Again, if you're here and you're like, oh my goodness, wow. Okay, so, so Paul is just saying, give this guy over to the enemy for the destruction of his flesh. Okay, wow. Strong language. Again, Paul has a high view of sin. He has a high view of obedience. And he says to the church, I have determined to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What does that mean? What does that mean? Probably what Paul meant is that he is delivering this man, and wants the church to, over to the world. You see, the the world, it it tells us, is is controlled by the prince of the power of the air. It, It is controlled by the enemy. In his authority, you might be saying, well, hold on a second. I thought God had all sovereignty. He does. Don't get scared for a moment, all right? He does. But for this time being, he has allowed for the enemy to have some authority. And, and, and so what that means is, is Paul has that idea here that, okay, I'm, I'm delivering this guy out to the world. I, I Literally what he has, and I'm handing him over to the enemy is what he means. And so the idea here is, is this man is no longer over the covering of the community and the fellowship of the church. He's no longer under the covering of the elders and the pastoral leadership of this church in Corinth, but instead, I'm handing him over. I'm handing him over. And so with this idea of this destruction of his flesh, it, it could mean, very, very much could mean that as he is handed over, that, that it could end up eventually, maybe even in death, maybe a premature death as well. So I think that's included in that. And so where do we get things like that at? In, in Acts chapter 5, we read about a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who, who lied 
And you remember what happened to those guys? One died <laughs> on the spot, and then the wife died right on the spot because they lied. And, and so sometimes the judgment of God can be that. In fact, even in this letter, in chapter 11, verse 30, one of the things we're going to read about when we get to uh, worship, corporate worship, we get to the idea of the Lord's Supper and stuff, there are even going to be those, uh, Paul says, that, that there are some because of how they have, have treated lightly the Lord's Supper and worship, there are those who have died because of that. You might be saying, whoa, hold on a second, that's in there? Chapter 11, verse 30, right? It, Paul addresses that. It's the judgment of God. Um, and so it could be that here. We, we don't know for sure. We, do, we don't even know what really happens to this guy, but that's a worst-case scenario. If he does not repent, if he does not turn from his sin and start living rightly. But Paul says, hand him over to the world. And Paul says here at the end, the reason. Look at verse 5. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, e even in judgment of him being handed over to the world, he, he, he may die. may physically die, but, but his spirit will be saved in the Lord on the day of the Lord Jesus, meaning that, that his soul will be saved still. Okay? Because this guy's a brother. This guy's a believer. This guy's a Christian. And, and so Paul is saying that, that this treatment of this one is for his good because eventually the hope is that this guy would stop doing what he's doing and that he would recognize that, that he has been sent outside the community, the covering of the church. And so what does that look like? Here, here's what I, I believe that, that this looks like often is, is that when there's one who is, is in this sin and, and continues to be in it, and when brothers or sisters are, are addressing them and saying, hey, listen, you... We want to direct you to truth. We want you to live in holiness. We want you to experience all that God wants you uh, for you in your life. And yet they continue to turn away from that and live in such a way like this guy is here and, and are not willing to repent. There are times we have to say, you know what? I, I've got to step away. I've got, I got to step away from you. I, I, I can't associate with you because here's what happens is they can start influencing you. Your presence with them is, is almost a, it can be a step of approval at times, and Paul's going to address that. But it's also for their good, for the sake of repentance, because here's what Paul has in mind here. Paul wants the good for this guy that eventually he would change, but he also wants the church to be protected. He wants to make sure that the influence of this one would not influence the rest. And so he says, this is why this must take place. It's for his best. And the hopes that this man would change as a result. And so look at verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, so this is kind of an interesting throw in here. Uh, he uses some symbolism. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And if you're in here and you're like, okay, leaven, yeast, Paul's throwing in another example, another illustration here in this letter. What is he saying here? Uh, the church um, almost took this permissiveness of allowing this guy to live this way 
as something they, they boasted in, they, they were proud about. And Paul says, hold on, hold on. Why, why are you boasting in this guy's sin and the fact that you're allowing that and not addressing it? Why would you boast in it? And so he calls them out, and he uses this illustration to make a point with leaven. And, and, and leaven here is used by Paul to represent sin and the spread of it. Okay, so kind of get this picture in your mind. I think, do you guys have this up there? Okay, get this picture in your mind. This is what yeast and leaven does when it, when it is um, put into dough. Okay, this, it just, it rises. Okay, it expands. And so kind of think of that imagery, right, as you think of what, what Paul is about to do right here with, with, with this in mind. Um, you can put that off. Some of us are maybe like thinking, oh, yeah. Let's do that. Let's make some bread. Uh, but look at, look at verse 6 again. He says, do, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And then he says, clean out the old leaven so that you may uh, be a new lump, right? And then he says, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, all right? And then he says, for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed, now, that might be a little confusing. You might read that and you say, okay, what is he talking about? But it's a real simple truth that, that Paul is trying to make here. And so the question is, why does the church need to stand on the truth of God's word, on the wisdom of God, as we've heard over the last few weeks? And, and, and why does the church not allow sin? Why, why do we have to have a high view of sin? And, and, and Paul gives the reasons here. The first reason is in verse 7, the last part. For Christ is our Passover. Uh, Christ, excuse me, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. And so here's, here's Paul's reason. Why we've got to stand on the truth and have a high view of sin and not allow it in the church is because Jesus has died for them. Jesus has died for us. Jesus has saved us. Why? Not just to go to heaven, Right? That's true, that we would have the gift of eternal life, but so that we would no longer be under the control of sin and that we would not live for what Christ died for. So he uses the example of Jesus here. And then he says, it, the secondly, um, with the idea of leaven and yeast and adding it to dough, he wants us to to understand that allowing sin like the church in Corinth has to run rampant and to reach the height that it has in the church causes it to spread like yeast and leaven and dough. And so in Jewish life, it was customary to, to do this. It was customary to throw away all the leaven or all the yeast in the house when you would start to prepare as a family the Passover celebration. And so you would, you would get rid of that because in Exodus 12 and 13, they were directed to do that. And they did this so the bread they made for Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, you can read about this in Exodus, um, that followed would be completely free of leaven. And so what Paul is doing here, he's using that imagery with that understanding, with that background. And so the point he's trying to make is like leaven or yeast, when such behavior is allowed, guess what? It spreads. It spreads. And we get that. But that's what he's... The point he's trying to make. And third and lastly, according to these verses here, 
He says, this should be our response. What should we do? And he says in verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. What he's basically saying here, um, you're in Christ. You're a believer. You've professed Christ as your Savior, but yet you're living this way. So, so what do we need to do? He says, hey, clean it out. Get rid of the old leaven. Get rid of the sin in your life. Get rid of the, rid of the things that, that are tempting you, whether it's on your phone or it's on your computer or it's a relationship or, or whatever it may be. Clean it out. Get rid of it. And so the real issue here is, hey, if you're struggling with a sin, what does Paul say we need to do? Clean it out. The Scripture says in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, that Jesus is faithful, he's righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord for that. So we're to confess. And we're to turn from our sin and walk in righteousness, to walk rightly, to walk in purity. And that's what the gospel is for. This, the gospel di- didn't just save us. It did. But it also transforms us and changes us continually into the image of Christ, causing us to grow and to be more like him. I was sitting at lunch this week at um, one of the middle schools, and, and I was at a table with... Um, Six seventh graders. Were they seventh graders? They were seventh. No, no, they're eighth graders. Eighth graders. I was sitting with uh, six eighth graders. And all of a sudden, and, and, and we've been going a couple weeks and, and hanging out with students at, at lunch and um, getting to know them and, and, and just sharing our lives with them. And, and this, this one kid, um, I asked him, I said, so, so did you go to the school last year? He's like, no. I was like, oh, I was like, cool. Did, so did you move to the area? He's like, no. And I was like, oh, so, so what, what, what brings you to the school? And he says, well, I got kicked out of my other school. I was like, oh, okay. And he began to open up and started sharing why, why he did. I was like, man. I was like, okay. I was like, well, hey, that's cool here. So, so you got a new start here, um, that this is a new, you know, turning over the leaf for you here at, at, at this new school. And he started to share, and he said, yeah, he said, one of the things that, that stinks, though, is, is some of the people here know what I did over there, and that they remind me of that. And I was like, oh, man. I mean, it just hit me right there. And so I just turned out, I just looked at him, and I said, hey, listen, man, your past mistakes at that old school, right, do not define who you are now. They, do, they don't have to define your identity now. And I just started sharing with them. I said, hey, listen. And it was so cool because there was like five other guys just kind of leaning forward and listening to this. And so I was like, yeah. And so I just said, hey, man, that's, that's what God does. That's what he did in Jesus is he, he tells us that our past mistakes, man, that, that he, when he saves us, he comes and he cleanses us. He makes us white as snow. And, and we do not have to be defined by our past mistakes, our past sins. But he gives us a new start, a fresh new start. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what his grace is all about. And I just kept encouraging him. 
kept encouraging. We'll see how he's doing next week. But and that's what the gospel does, and, and that's what the gospel wants to continue to do in our life, is, is to grow us up in Jesus Christ, that we become more like him. And so look what he does next, and we're going to wrap up on, on these last few verses. He says, our response. What should our response be? Look at verse 8. Therefore, right? So, so therefore, when we have this frame of thinking that, hey, we should not live for sin. We shouldn't just pass over sin and have a low view of it because Jesus died for us. Um, we shouldn't let it be in our midst because we don't want it to spread and, and start impacting the lives of others. But instead, we should clean it out. We should walk in holiness. He says, because of that, in verse 8, let us celebrate the feast. Okay, so he still has the Passover in mind as he's thinking about verse 7. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so he has this idea of let us worship and let us celebrate in realness with all that we are and according to the truth. Because guess what? Corinth wasn't. <laughs> Corinth wasn't. They were full of malice and wickedness. But he says, instead, let us come, and, and, and may there be a change in our life, and may it boil over and, and, and flow over into our worship experience to where we worship our God in sincerity and truth. I think individually, yes, but also as a community as well. And then look what he says next, because this is key. Because the issue of immorality, right, was present in the church, it, it most definitely is present in the world, and Paul wants to make sure that we have a full understanding of how we address it, both within and without. So look what he says in verse 9, 10, 11. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And so Paul has written them a few letters. And so he says, I, I'm going to address a letter that I wrote, and I told you not to associate with immoral people. But listen to what he says, and I think I love this section of Scripture because this helps us as a church understand how we are to live um, in the world but not be of it. Listen to what he says in verse 10. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, the key phrase, or with the covetous swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world, which is unrealistic. Okay, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, covetous, or an idolater, a reveler, or a drunkard, not even to eat with such a one. And so Paul is going to clarify something in this letter about something he wrote before, not to associate with immoral people. Who did he mean? According to this, he meant not to associate with the immoral people within the church, so-called brothers and sisters. He says we're not to even eat with someone who lives in such a way and calls himself a Christian. So, so the guy in verse 1 that we're talking about, that's what Paul has in mind here. And, and so what he, he means here um, is we're not to associate with those in the church that say they're believers, yet, yet they live a life of sin. And, and so, again, back to how do we respond. Some people have responded in the sense of excommunicating them, meaning they can't come to you at all. They can't come to worship services. They, they can't, can't be uh, present at all. Some have taken that view on that. Um, I think in some extreme cases, 
that can be taken, all right? I, I don't think necessarily that's what Paul has in mind, though. I think in some extreme cases, and, and you, you could fill in the blanks of what that might have to be, that that might have to be present for someone who's living in such a way that is harmful to the church. That might have to be taken. But I think what Paul has in mind here is engaging socially with those who call themselves believers, yet they're living in outright sin. And so it would mean like a social meal, not to invite them to your house, uh, not to accept their invitations. Why? If you go back up to verse 6, because the idea of leaven, right? Now, this doesn't mean it, it couldn't be like um, a, a meeting or a coffee where you're meeting with them to encourage them to leave this life of sin. He's not saying that. No, you want to continue to do that. But as far as socially, if they live in outright sin like this guy in verse 1, Paul is saying here, that's what I meant when I wrote to you not to associate with immoral because of the reasons that Paul has already mentioned. Now, does this mean that no one who's a Christian will ever struggle? <laughs> no. That's not what Paul is saying either, so don't think that at all. And Paul had to go back and do a lot of clarifying of, of what he meant. But he's talking about those who are not willing to change, to get healed, to grow in holiness, but they continue to sin without such signs of change. And Paul says, it's those that I'm talking about. He's not talking about the fact that we're not going to struggle, the fact that we're not going to mess up, the fact that we're not going to have times where we do struggle with impurity. He's talking about the non-repenting believer who is not willing to change. That's what he has in mind here. And he doesn't want the church to have a light view of that and just merely to accept it and say, oh, it's okay so that it doesn't spread and influence others. So what did Paul not mean? <laughs> he did not mean a believer should never associate with sinners. He did not mean that a believer should never associate with unbelievers. That's not what he's saying here. Those outside the church, in fact, Paul would say, no, associate with them. Associate with them. Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus ate with prostitutes. Jesus ate with the tax collectors who many hated. And so what Paul is addressing here is this idea that creeps into many groups and have over time, and still even today, is this idea of isolationism, which would require that they would stop living in the real world, Paul mentions, which is unrealistic and unfaithful to God, who has called us to be salt and light in the world. And so Paul was not meaning immoral people of the world. In fact, in John 17, 15 through 16, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Jesus is praying for his disciples to the Father. He says, I, I did not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And that's Paul's heart too. They are not of the world, disciples aren't. Even as I am not of the world, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So Jesus has called us to the world. So Paul says, why would I say you not, not to associate with others in the world? I'm not telling you to do that. But instead, yes, to associate with them, to engage with them for the sake of the gospel. And lastly, look what he says, and we'll close at verse 12 through 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul's asked the question. Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside? God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. 
And so what Paul is saying with outsiders, those who are unbelievers, what is our response to them? Paul says we're not to hold them into judgment. Not to hold them into judgment. That's not our job. That's, that's God's job. That's God's job. But with those in the church, we are to judge. Did you know that? We're, we're to judge each other when it comes to how we live. What that means, we're holding each other accountable to live rightly. When we see a brother, when we see a sister that, that is not living rightly, they're living according to sin, that we're to call each other to the side and say, hey, listen, I, I just want to address this with you. I want to encourage you to, to stop this. I mean, they're, they're th- we are to do that. But he says with the world here, it's not our job. So what is our job? What's our role with the world as a church? Is to love the world, to love the world, and to hold out the truth of the gospel. Just as Jesus did. Now, does that mean we don't judge things that are in the world and issues in the world? There are times where, yes, you have to stand for justice. You have to stand for what's right. You have to stand for truth. You betcha. We're going to have to do that. But, but it, is our, it is not our role to hold someone else into judgment. That is God's role. Our role is to hold out the truth of the gospel to the world and to love people. And I think really 12 and 13 is, is, is in many ways where the church has gotten, gotten off base in our world today. Because our role is to love the world, to hold out the gospel. That's our responsibility. The gospel is the only hope of change for broken people. That's it. That continues to be the message that the church must hold out. I, I pray today as, as we read this text, and there's some hard things in this text. I mean, some real hard things in this text. Some things that maybe hit us and we're like, whoa, that's, that's, that's strong. I mean, there are some things. But I think the thing as we walk away with today we need to understand is that God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ, his one and only son, to die for us. And that he placed upon his son on the cross the sin of the world. That which separates us from God, sin. He put it upon his son. And his son paid the price for us by taking the penalty of that sin and paying it for us. So that if we would trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior and believe that his death is sufficient to pay for the price of our sin, our dragging of God's name and his glory through the mud, our doing that with every little sin that we commit throughout the day, that's what Jesus died for. And it separates us from God. And God said, you know what, I love you so much, I I don't want you to be separated from me. So I'm going to put Jesus, my one and only son, on the cross for you to pay that price. And if we would believe and receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we'd be forgiven of that sin. Every sin, past, present, and future. That's the message Paul wants to communicate to the church. It's the message he wants the church to communicate to the world. That's how much God loves us. And as a church, we need to understand that God loves us that much and that we are to love each other that much 
that we take a text like this seriously and understand that, hey, listen, we've got to continue to live a life in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel daily. And we're to encourage each other to do that according to the truth with a, with a high view of sin like God has. Not to overlook it, not to simply excuse it, but to love God that much and to love each other that much that we're like, hey, well, you know what? Let's, let's hold each other accountable. Let's walk according to the truth together. And as we do that, let's love a world rightly with the gospel.